I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show and a podcast where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening today. On the day of Amy Butler's hard-won ordination as a Baptist minister, her father-in-law shared a five-word prayer that would guide her work and a life that was more tumultuous than she imagined as a young pastor. He said, be kind and be strong. Butler writes in her new memoir that those words remain as clear as if they were spoken yesterday. This is the story of how a young woman defied the restrictions of a conservative faith and fractious congregations, endured personal failings and deep grief, and found fortitude in her beliefs, her community, and her family. She writes in the introduction, the invitation to become who we're meant to be happens at the intersection of human pain and divine hope, and almost always in the context of relationship. Amy Butler's new memoir is titled Beautiful and Terrible Things, and she joins us from Honolulu, Hawaii, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Carrie. I'm so happy to be with you. I want to begin on that day of your ordination because I think it foreshadows in a way of what lies ahead. You're in a chapel at a Baptist church in New Orleans where friends and family have flown in to see you ordained. But as you write, in the crowd, some important faces are missing. Who refused to be there and why did they refuse to be there? Yes, I think like a lot of people, I grew up in a very conservative evangelical context. And so, you know, my parents weren't there, for example. My grandparents, people who had been so important to my uh, formative faith years, they just couldn't show up. And that has remained constant throughout my career and my life and, and, and a source of pain. Yes, for sure. I think you should, if you will, explain more about what the conservatism of the faith community that you grew up in, how important that was to your parents and your grandparents, and then how that prevented them to come seeing you ordained in their faith. Yes, I grew up in a kind of religion that was very structured with lists of rules and black and white expectations for how you get into heaven, you know, a recipe for how to live your life, which I can understand. I mean, I can understand why people like that kind of religion. It's very safe. And that was the case for my family. It was very clear what you do and what you don't do. And one of the things you don't do for sure, if you're a woman, is be a pastor. I, you know, thought all of my childhood that I would probably do the wild and exotic thing of marrying a pastor, if anything. (laughs) Um, But I had by then defied all the rules and was, was not following what was expected of me. So I think, you know, in best case scenario, they thought I was going through a phase um, it's been about 30 years, so I'm pretty sure they, they know that's <laughs> not the case. But <laughs> but for sure, I was blatantly and openly breaking the rules. Just to give our, our listeners a sense that you don't just mean, you know, that your parents got over it and your grandparents got over it. 
I read that scene that you describe with your grandfather in his retirement home room. Will you describe what yes. he said to you? And, and I guess I also want to hear, you had lived with this for a long time. What, what it felt like when he said this at yes. the, near the end of his life, in the middle of yours. Yeah, Stephen and Carrie, I've been just come back from a book tour, and this was the scene that people brought up the most in really? the five weeks I was on the road. It was really interesting. I was probably 18 years into ordained ministry and had stopped by the retirement home to visit my grandparents. I, by then, avoided him because he was a very difficult person, but managed to run into him in the dining room while I was visiting my grandmother. And he, you know, motioned over to me. I walked over and he told me I was the biggest disappointment of his life. And, um, you know, pastoral work is hard. You hear a lot of terrible things from people. And I was not prepared for that moment. And that really sent me reeling. He was able to just get that last dig in right at the end. And it was one of the examples in my life of how bad religion rips us apart. How would you describe what the Baptist church believed then about women leaders in the church and what they believe now. I, I'm interested in how much it has changed over the course of your ministry. That's an interesting question. And a lot of people think of Baptists as monolithic, and we are not. There are every extreme of Baptists you can imagine. Of course, when we think of Baptists, we think of Southern Baptists who are in the news a lot for um, allowing the abuse of young children to continue and many other distasteful things. I actually was ordained in that tradition and um, have migrated my way north to American Baptists who are open and loving and make space for everyone. And uh, so I have geographically moved my Baptist identity and dear God, let us hope that people of faith have moved a little bit more toward the inclusive message of Jesus, please. But your sense is that Southern Baptists have held pretty firm to this idea that women should not lead churches and should not be ministers. Is that right? That's correct. In fact, recently in Texas, as recent as last week, there was a new rule passed that no church would be allowed to stay in the larger denomination with a woman in pastoral leadership. Uh, so, you know, I feel at this point in my career, like if that's what you want to spend your time on, knock yourself mm -hmm. out. There are other things we need to do. We are living in a world that's hurting and, you know, people need hope. So I just, I just mostly ignore it at this point. You know, it, it's such a, it's such an important point though, because you've just alluded to this furor that's going on right now in the Southern Baptist church because they've gone on the record, the church leadership is opposing expanding the statue of limitations for victims of sexual abuse. Russell Moore, the former head of the church's ethics and religious liberty committee has spoken out about this and told the New York Times, mm -hmm. 
I've never seen such unmitigated and justified anger among Southern Baptists. It sounds like maybe the the church itself, the congregations, the people want to push in a way that the leadership is bound and determined it will not. And I wonder where that goes. <laughs> I think you just summed up what life in church is like. Institutions are so intractable, <laughs> they won't change. And um, that that's a hard thing for pastors and leaders. But really, I think that's a microcosm of our country in this moment. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, because I, I wanted to address how we cross boundaries and bridges that seem intractable when we're in conversation and relationship with people who just fundamentally will not change. I'm thinking about what you said a few minutes ago about um, your, your grandparents' adherence to a faith that was very strict and that they felt very safe in that faith. I mean, yes. In I yes. know that uncertainty and change is frightening for a lot of people. But but yes. there is a sense, right, that these churches, the congregations themselves, the 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 faithful want the church to evolve and that the leadership is at some point going to have to respond to that. Don't you think? I hope so, Carrie, but I have spent a lot of my career working on the edges of institutions, trying to push us in that direction. And it is really hard. It's hard to change. And a lot of us have in our mind this 1950s Christian America that does not exist anymore. It's time to move on. What does that 1950s Christian America look like? Mother, father, three kids, everybody dressed nicely, showing up at church on time, sitting in the pew they sit in every week, attending programs at church four times a week, giving a lot of money, and showing the world a life that is perfect and beautiful. Who wants that? <laughs> Besides <Not> me. <laughs> I mean, that's a church that is so outside most people's, that's a community that is so outside most people's experience. It's unreal. And I think most of us know that. Yes, yes, we know. We know that what we really want is a place where we can be ourselves, where we can show up with all of our foibles and failures and places that we hurt and questions that we live with and, and be okay. But... We're also afraid of being vulnerable. You write about, I, I thought your analysis of why churches can be so political was really fascinating. I grew up in the Lutheran church. My parents were really involved in, let's say, the politics of the church. So I'm familiar with this. Mm. And you write, churches are largely volunteer organizations, and some people become involved to get what they don't otherwise experience in their personal lives, especially influence and power. So they bring into church all of the things they're supposed to be working on in therapy, insecurities, personal agendas, childhood traumas. 
Will you will you talk a bit about what some of the church meetings were like when all of that was on display? Yes, yes. Church can be a terrible place, and it shocks all of us because we imagine that people show up at church because they want to become better people. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. not true. Church is a hospital. It's a place we go when we are looking for some relief for our pain. Um, so I remember one meeting in particular when I was a very young minister. I'm sort of embarrassed to tell you this now because I allowed the meeting to go on for over an hour. And the meeting was about the length of my skirt and how <laughs> it, it may or may not be inappropriate. And um, finally, at the, at the end of about 90 minutes, I just said, I find this so strange because I wear a robe. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes the worst comes out and people who are not dealing with their issues like to create chaos and they do it at church. I've been in five hour long committee meetings at church where people are throwing things and yelling at each other. It's the worst of humanity on display in many instances. Amy, that's mind blowing. I mean, I just, I guess I knew this intellectually, but to hear it from the inside is just, you know, and again, I'm struck by what you said, your description of church as a hospital, because when we let, in the medical world, when you go to a hospital, you are in some ways submitting to the expertise of the people who are there to treat you and cure you hopefully. You would I mean, think. This, this, yes. You'd think. I mean, this sounds like there was so much contention and challenge to your leadership. People felt very, some felt very little obligation to um, yes. accede, I guess, to your, your knowledge and experience. Yes, I would say, especially as the institution declines in America, which Gallup will show you has happened, you know, over the last 70 years in a constant downward trend, uh, we're losing our pastors and churches are having a really hard time finding a pastor because who's going to put up with this? I mean, that's crazy, right? <laughs> and, and, and it leads to the question of why do you stay? Like, why are you still here after all of this? And the answer to that, I hope people will read in my book. And that is like these moments of just like, like heart filling connection when people somehow manage to be better than they have been before. And there's a, there's a part of the book where I write about my divorce. And the whole point of that chapter is about how the church that had hurt me and hurt me and hurt me and put me through those five hour meetings and conversations about my skirt showed up and saved my life. You know, sometimes we can really, really be great. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little more about that. But first, um, to remind our listeners, if you've just tuned in, I'm in conversation with Amy Butler. She um, led a number of churches 
and has written a new memoir titled Beautiful and Terrible Things about her experiences of faith and family and dealing with church politics and going through some very difficult times in her own life. And as you've just heard her say, times when the church would step up and be a force for good, and sometimes when she asked herself, as I think she's saying a number of pastors do, what am I doing here? Why am I still doing this? I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. Um, first, I want to note that you ended up leading some very large churches on the East Coast. And, what, and you, you had also spent some time in your career in small churches. What I wondered is if, if it is really any different in the big fancy churches that I think feel like they've figured it out than it is in the small churches? That's such a good question, Carrie. When I was thinking about whether or not I would go to Riverside Church in New York City, which is the tallest church in America and a very prominent pulpit, I remember talking to Gary Hall, who was the dean of the National Cathedral at the time, and he looked at me straight in the face and he said, it's just a church. They're just people. And he was right. I mean, 2,500 people are is harder to manage than 200, but it's true. We, we all show up with all of our baggage. And when you accepted the positions at these large churches, did you, you know, I'd like to understand more about your motivation. I mean, did you it's obviously a feather in your cap to be invited to lead a church of that size and that wealth and influence. But was your thinking, if I can manage a church with this many people and this kind of a budget, we can really make a difference in our community because we've got the heft of that influence. What, what was it, do you think, that drew you to these big churches? Well, Carrie, it's interesting. I called a clearness committee, which is a Quaker tradition, uh, before I accepted the call to Riverside Church in New York. As the first woman, the seventh senior minister of that church, known for its fractured relationships with pastors its whole entire career. And I had seven of my friends sit around in a room and talk to me for two hours, and I listened. And they said things like, you know, church has almost killed you. Why would you do something like this? Um, <laughs> wow. They also said things like, you know, you think you can't get a date now. No one's going to date the pastor <laughs> of Riverside Church. I mean, like, <laughs> those are my good friends. But the reason I went is because I – I can see the institution shifting. And I thought, if a church like Riverside could show the country how faith institutions can shift during this time of change and like meet people where they are in our communities where the needs are great, if faith institutions can speak to the fractured politics of our time, you know, if anybody's going to be able to show the way, it's going to be Riverside Church. And ultimately, that's why I decided to go. Hmm. You describe some really tumultuous months ahead of your acceptance uh, of the job at Riverside, and we should note that that's in New York City. Yes. Um, what, 
first it was going through the process to get the job. Again, I think maybe some listeners are not familiar with what it means to receive the kind of call to a church, to be in the running, to lead a church. I I think this might be informative. Will you talk about what it means to be brought to a church like that, to basically interview um, as they're going to make their selection? What's it like for you? So I don't know, maybe clerking at the Supreme Court, or I, I don't know what it would be in other professions, <laughs> but this is like the the big deal pulpit in American Christianity. Some of the most amazing preachers have preached from this pulpit, Martin Luther King, Jim Forbes, William Sloan Coffin. I mean, people who have given words to moments of history that have been shifting of our, our whole entire community and, and nation even. So it was, it was scary. It was terrifying. And, you know, people were like, who is this woman? Like, we never heard of her before. Like, this is a celebrity <laughs> pulpit. And people were like, who is this? <laughs> and there were times when I, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is crazy town. <laughs> So one of the things we really did after I got there was try to dismantle this this uh, metaphor or this storyline of like the pastor is a celebrity, because yeah. when when you put someone up on a pedestal like that, it's really easy to take shots. And I thought the only way I'm going to survive long enough to do any meaningful work is to try to be a real person. And so you'll note through the book that like one of the things I asked them to do when I got there was call me Pastor Amy instead of mm-hmm. Dr. Butler. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons I did that, to try to remind the congregation that I'm a human being just like everybody else. And that when we learn to connect with each other in the moments where our raw humanity shows itself, that can be so powerful. And ultimately, as you read, that's what took me down, right? Right. But we're not there yet, Amy. (laughs) More story to tell (laughs) before we get there. Um, I think it's interesting to hear you talk about your move to kind of dismantle the celebrity, because my guess is that, as you've just alluded, there were plenty of people in that congregation who loved the idea that they were part of a community like this that could support a pastor that had the kind of, you know, celebrity influence far beyond the church and would not want to see that diminished, right? In in the way they might describe right. it. Right. I mean, when did you become aware of that? Very soon after I first got there. I mean, I, I was asked to meet with the former pastor in a in a secret room at St. John the Divine Cathedral, which is a few blocks away. And I remember thinking, Carrie, like, why don't we just meet at Starbucks? I did not understand what is going on here. And so I had like this really naive sense of, and I think a lot of pastors do this. You interview with committees and they're like, we want to be a church that is open and welcoming and we want everyone to come and we want, but they don't really mean that. And, you know, I think everything I experienced at Riverside was the same as other churches, only on a much bigger 
platform and I'm on a much bigger level. One of the the stories I, I don't tell in the book is that the week after I arrived, they pulled me aside and said, we forgot to tell you, we're going to be fixing all the stained glass in the front of the nave. So the pulpit will be shut down. And the Riverside pulpit is way up high. You have to climb all these stairs to get up to it. And they said, unfortunately, you're going to have to preach from the floor. And that was the best thing that ever happened. It was wonderful. And why? I got to connect with people sitting there in the pews. I got to look people in the eyes. I got to learn people's names. I got to try to live into what I really, really feel, which is I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to disquiet you. I'm here to make you think. I'm here to challenge you to build the kind of community that does not exist in many places in this world. You've uh, alluded to the fact that when you accepted the job at Riverside, you thought you'd be going there as a as part of a married couple with your children. But before you took this job, I think, or as you were in the process of interviewing for it, you're Although you knew your marriage was struggling, it sounds like you were pretty blindsided when your husband told you that he wanted a divorce. Is that right? Yes, the timing is a little different. I had already been divorced about four years. So my discernment about moving to New York was related to being the mother of two children who were still at the end of high school and trying to co-parent and... It was such a hard decision. Yes. What? How is divorce seen in the American Baptist denomination? <laughs> you know, when I got divorced, I didn't know any pastors that were divorced. And in my moments of clarity, I thought, well, I've always been the first woman. Might as well be the first. Of, you know, I had to figure it out from scratch. And... In my world, divorce is a moral failure, like like the worst thing that you could possibly do. And it's usually the woman's fault. Hmm. And so I think in my family system, it was another evi- uh, another piece of evidence that I had <laughs> fallen off, off the, the path of righteousness or whatever. But it's every single person knows everybody's life is touched by divorce. Marriage is hard. Sometimes relationships don't work. And that was sort of new terrain that I had to navigate as a pastor. I write in the book about my oldest son, his first question after I told the kids we were divorcing was, will you get fired? And to me, that is such a statement about how the church shows up in our moments of biggest crisis. And it's not very flattering. So you were, at this time, you were preaching, or you were the pastor at the church in Washington, D.C. Is that right? D.C. Okay. That's right. You write, I'd arrogantly never considered that my marriage might end. I'm not a quitter, and I usually prefer, I'm ashamed to say, to live in misery and save face. I mean, that seems Mm. really antithetical in some ways to 
the tenets of being a fulfilled, self-actualized person of faith, no less the person that is leading a church where, you know, people have been through this. Well, thanks for calling me out there, Carrie. (laughs) You're right. You're exactly right. Oh, you called yourself out in the book. (laughs) If we want to talk a little bit about um, some of my regrets, I mean, that would be one of them, that I didn't have the courage to say, we can't make this work. You know, our, our life together is complete, and it's time to move on and to do that with respect and love. And I didn't have the courage to do that. And my lack of courage, I think, caused a lot of pain. And I don't think I did my people a, a service to, to show this church, you know, like, oh, we have this perfect family, you know, loving husband and wife and three kids and, you know, husband sings in the choir, you know, it looked really good on the outside. And it was, it was not. And people didn't see that. And I, I have a lot of regrets about, you know, not, not living into what I'm calling other people to do, which is to be authentic and to be honest about, about your life. You had to figure out how to tell your church community. I'd like to hear, I mean, what you thought, why this was so difficult, what you thought the reaction was going to be, and then what the reaction was. But I'd love our our listeners to have a sense of why this seemed like such a difficult task that you didn't feel like you could just say, I've got some news, it's painful, here it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think like some women or, or men, like my divorce sort of came out of the blue at me, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty and all of that, but I did not have plans to get divorced. We were not talking about it. It had not come up in our family and uh, it sort of hit me sideways. So I was struggling to get my mind around that reality and then also, as I said, I didn't know any pastors who were divorced. So like, how do you, how do you tell your Baptist church that you're getting divorced? I, I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> so uh, there's a scene in the book where, you know, and the backstory is that this church and I had been through so much transition and change. We'd brought the church into being welcoming and affirming of the LGBTQ community. We'd, we'd gone through a lot of structural changes and a lot of conflict and we're just coming out of that. And I called the chair of one of our committees and I just said to her, I have something to tell you and I don't, know what how you're going to respond but I'm getting divorced I didn't see it coming and I don't know how to proceed from here because when you're a pastor like there's a whole community that thinks they own you and all of the details of your life right Um, so in some ways you're a public figure right and this this particular scene in the book is one of my defining moments of faith and human life because she said to me, you have taught us how to be gospel community in the way of Jesus, and we will do that now for you and for your children. 
as I still get kind of teary when I think about it, it was every pastor's dream. Like, I've been trying to teach you this for years. Oh, my God, you listened. (laughs) And in this case, I was a beneficiary of that. You have some, what I think are really wonderful passages about what you believe and the way you believe in God and what you've tried to communicate to these communities that you've led. I wondered if you could share some of that with with our audience. It's funny. I tell people that this book is about Amy, like believing, then not believing, then believing, then not believing, then <laughs> believing, then not believing, <laughs> which I think is any honest person's story of faith. Um, this passage comes in a chapter where I'm grieving the loss of a child. And I had just graduated from seminary. And the passage is this. I think my grief was too raw to touch in real time, even for the people who loved me. But it was God with whom I was really angry. I had just graduated from seminary, trained to be a minister. Here I was degree in hand, looking toward pastoral ministry in some form, and my perfectly planned life seemed derailed. Even after countless hours of theology classes, my many questions tumbled over one another with very few answers. I was scared to say any of this out loud, especially in a community with people who knew a lot about God. How would I look in front of them to be asking such questions? One night when I was alone again and overcome with grief, my two-year-old put to bed and all the tasks of the day finished. A dear friend called. I curled up on the blue institutional carpet in our rented living room, tears filling my eyes. I managed to choke out my fear. I hate God, I said. I hate God. And I don't care if that means I can never work in the church, if I'm not good enough to be a Christian like I'm supposed to be. I hate God. And I don't even care what you think about that. There was a long silence on the other end of the telephone. Finally, my friend said, Amy, you know when Hayden throws a tantrum, when his body goes limp in the middle of the grocery store and he screams at the top of his lungs and he won't stop because he wants a cookie, but you won't give him one? Sure, I said. Just earlier that week, my son had thrown a tantrum so extreme that he vomited all over a display of red peppers in the produce section. And all I could think to do was abandon the full grocery cart, grab my child, and flee in total embarrassment. Do you love Hayden any less, even when he's acting like a little hellion, expressing his discontent the only way he knows how? No, of course not, I sniffled. She said... Well, I think God is the same way. God can handle your grief and pain and outrage and fear and doubt. Just let it all out. When we hang up the telephone tonight, you go ahead and wail your heart out. Tell God what a total jerk you think he is. Curse the unfairness of it all. Scream about how you don't deserve this and how you're scared you're not good enough and how if that's the way God thinks about things, then you think he's an ass. Pound your fists on the floor. Tell God you're done. Throw up in the produce section. Whatever you need to do, God can handle it. I stopped crying, 
stunned. Amy Butler reading from her new memoir, Beautiful and Terrible Things, Faith, Doubt, and Discovering a Way Back to Each Other. You know, as I was, you, you're so vulnerable in this book, and it sounds like you found a way to be vulnerable to your, your faith communities, your churches. By the way, you have really smart friends. <laughs> I'm sure you know that. And you're lucky for that. I do. But here's what, here's what I wonder about that, is whether, you know, as you were learning to do that and getting comfortable with that, whether, you know, members of the congregation were comfortable with that as well. Did they want their pastor to be as vulnerable and human as you felt you needed to be? And, and I actually think you thought, and will lead the church into a more compassionate, kind of forgiving community. But did they want it? That was my hope. And also, Carrie, I'm just tired. I don't want to try to be somebody I'm not. <laughs> but to your question, absolutely not. We don't want pastors who are human. We don't want leaders who make mistakes. I remember my first Holy Week at Riverside. It was a Wednesday night service, and someone came up to me and said, so will your children be joining you for Easter weekend? And it was my first Easter without any children at home. And I sort of teared up and like a tear sort of ran out of the corner of my eye. And that woman looked straight at me and she said, I cannot deal with the pastor crying. I have to leave. And she turned around and oh ran gosh. out of there. Wow. So I say, no, we don't like our leaders <laughs> to be vulnerable. Wow. I mean, what lesson did you take in that moment from that? If I didn't already know it before, it is dangerous to be vulnerable. Because when you live your truth out loud, you're in a way challenging other people to do that. And some people just can't do that or won't. I mean, th this is something Brene Brown talks a lot about, is how truly risky it is, right? Not just from a personal reputational standing, but what are people going to do when you really show up like that? Yes. And in fact, I've, I've taught a doctor of ministry class called The Vulnerable Leader for many years using Brene's mm. book. Mm -hmm. And my sense about this is that as we serve institutions in decline, if we're not getting real about who we are, then we can't get real about the future of our institutions. And so this is hard work. This is like risky frontline. Here is my life. Um, do what you will with it. And it can, it can really, really hurt. You know, it sounds like, you mentioned this earlier, um, it sounds like among some of the most, I guess, vulnerable and fraught times in your career as a pastor was when you were at Calvary Baptist in D.C. and you faced this imperative of leading the congregation into being more welcoming to gay members. I was curious about what you learned about yourself and what you learned about this community that as you've noted you'd led through some pretty tough times 
Yes. I love that you asked that question. The The truth of the story is I did not want to lead that process. And I'm ashamed to say that. And it didn't have anything to do with what I thought about the LGBTQ community. It had to do with my just my my just weariness of conflict. And we had been through such conflict over silly things like the bylaws and who signs the toilet paper vouchers. And I was just like, how are we going to navigate, you know, talking about being gay and being welcoming? And it was my board at church who said, absolutely not. It is time for us to talk about this and to be open about the fact that we welcome everyone in this place. So I have to really give them credit for saying, uh, no, pastor, this is what you've been teaching us. We need to do this. And so we went through a six-month process of telling our personal stories to each other, of studying. Of I tell the whole story in the book. And uh, at the end, there's this beautiful moment where one of the older members of the church got up at the business meeting. And she said, I don't even know about this gay thing. I don't know what I think about homosexuals. But I do know that I love all of you. And if you think this is the right thing to do, then I say, let's do it. And it was a unanimous vote to be open and affirming. <laughs> it was beautiful. So what did you emerge from that realizing about this church community that what well, it sounds like it given you some sleepless nights and they'd had plenty of their own? I mean, what were you all like on the That's- other side of this? I think it's one of, it's a pastor's biggest dream, you know, that you would be preaching this message of, of love and welcome and building a community where everyone is welcome. And they actually listen and then they do it. It's like, it's like your dream come true. Um, so for me, it was, it was like the carrot that pulled me toward even deeper pastoral ministry. Because when the church is good, when community is good, it is so good and we can change the world together. We really can. I like the way you you ended that passage. You write, it could be that God wants us to break the rules a little more, to open our hands and let go, especially when we're absolutely convinced we're right. When we do, we might be surprised at how much we can heal ourselves and the world, too, right along with us. I'll bet you that idea of breaking rules. I mean, how often did you talk openly about about this idea? Carrie, I talk about it all the time because I embody it in the church, right? I'm a woman who's leading, and so in my very existence, I'm pushing the boundaries, and I think that God doesn't need us to follow rules. I mean, God's fine. God's just fine. And maybe the rules that we set up are more our judgments of the world and the people with whom we live in the world and less God's because God is doing just fine. (laughs) It sounds like your experience at Riverside in New York City. Again, for our listeners, this is the church you went to after leading Calvary Baptist Church in D.C. Um, It sounds like it was both a joyful one and a searing one. And you encountered, boy, some real resistance 
to trying to bring that church into more openness and awareness of during the Me Too movement. Can you talk a little bit about your goals and then how the church responded to that? I think it would be helpful to point out that I was, you know, pastor of a church of 250 members with a four-person staff going to a church with a $15 million annual budget and 200 members of the staff and 2,500 members of the church. And so all of a sudden I was leading a corporation. So it was a huge learning curve for me, but you know, to me, church is church. And if you say you want to live in the way of Jesus, that means you love God and you love your neighbor and that's how we behave. And uh, so I just uh, tried to apply the same things I did in my little baby church to a big, huge corporation. And in many ways it worked. We had these uh, pastor's table meetings once a month where I would have 10 people over to my house for dinner and we'd all get to know each other and share a meal and learn what it means to be church and not sit in a cathedral and be in that. But when you are in a place where everything's extreme, so much money, so much power, so much influence, there's also so much good and so much bad that can happen. And as you mentioned, I was the first woman and naively thought I'm in the most progressive uh, Protestant congregation in America. This, this shouldn't be an issue anymore. Great. I won't have to deal with being a woman or all the issues that come with that. <laughs> and I could not have been more wrong. I could not have been more wrong. You know, I'm watching women leaders of educational institutions in this moment Mm. being raked over the coals and thinking again about how women are held to such a different standard when we're in leadership roles. And it was, it was brutal and it was breathtakingly difficult. Do you have a better understanding now with the distance and the experience of writing the memoir about why Riverside resisted your efforts to be more open and thoughtful about Me Too and the sexual harassment that you and others were confronting there, why they did not want to be part of the change. You know, you're touching on something, Carrie, that I can answer in a technical way, which is they're an institution and institutions are designed to be intractable. But from a personal and professional standpoint, it felt like deep failure to me. Like, mm -hmm. have you not been listening to what I've been mm -hmm. saying all of these years? Have I not done a good enough job um, teaching you that following the way of Jesus costs, that you have to stand up and say that things are wrong. You have to work for what is right. You have to stand up for people who are being hurt. Like, did I fail? That was a really painful part of, of that whole experience. Do you think you did? Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, no, I don't think I did. I don't think I did because the political shenanigans that went on there were 
led by a very small group of people and the community that we built there and that in many ways continues to this day was not for nothing. I wondered uh, which spiritual thinkers or philosophers or, you know, people who are just writing wisely about the human condition that you turn to when you need inspiration or insight or comfort who are you who are you listening to mm. well Brene Brown is one of my favorites but um, the book is actually named for a quote from a modern theologian in Frederick Buechner who wrote here is the world beautiful and terrible things will happen don't be afraid so he's one that I turn to regularly when I'm trying to think about the theology of my Christian tradition and how it impacts the world around me. There are many others, Walter Brueggemann, Brian McLaren, um, lots of folks that I look to to um, help me try to make sense of what's going on in the world. You're not leading a church in Hawaii now, or are you? I am leading a church. Oh, you are! It is wonderful. Yes, I'm leading a little, little church here in Hawaii. That we have about a hundred people in worship on Sunday, and it's lovely. You know, it's interesting to hear you all the joy in your voice because it sounds like you emerged from, you know, particularly that experience at Riverside, pretty disillusioned, and I was questioning. Yeah, I questioning. Was. So. What led you back into leadership? Mm. You know, I meet so many people who are like, I'm done with institutional religion, and I can just look them straight in the eye and say, I hear you. Because I remember the first time I walked across the, the doorway of a church after I left Riverside, it was so difficult. It was so difficult. You know, like, here I am, again, taking my heart out and putting it on the pew next to me and hoping that we'll actually live what we say we believe. The reason I keep coming back is because I believe that communities that practice radical love and acceptance can change the world. I believe it. And I've seen it too many times to let it go. So I'm just going to keep at it. I also know that's the definition of craziness. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, I hear the conviction in your voice. Amy, thank you so much. Carrie, this has been so lovely. Thank you for having me. Amy Butler's new book is titled Beautiful and Terrible Things, Faith, Doubt, and Discovering a Way Back to Each Other. 